Let me ask you to open up your Bibles and let's turn together to Romans chapter 10. To Romans chapter 10. As we continue working our way verse by verse through this just amazing letter uh, that has affected so many people in uh, the history of the world. I imagine that many of you have uh, already seen the image or uh, seen the story on the news uh, about the boy and the baseball bat. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, Here just a a few weeks ago, there was a boy and his father attending a spring training baseball game between the Atlanta Braves and the Pittsburgh Pirates, and the boy was apparently bored because it's spring training baseball. And so he had his nose in a cell phone and uh, was probably playing a game of some kind on the phone. And so he didn't notice when uh, Danny Ortiz, a Pirates player, uh, swung at a ball and accidentally let go of the bats. And the bat went hurling into the stands directly towards the boy's, the boy's head. And at just the last second, and the photo is pretty amazing how somebody caught it right at that moment, at just the last second, we see the arm of the boy's father move in front of his face. And the father's arm takes the blow of the bat, and then the bat goes over uh, the head of the boy. Now, I think there's certainly a lesson there for fathers, a lesson there about what it means to protect your family even when it means pain and hardship for yourself. I think there's a lesson there for all of us about uh, how real love puts others first. And I think there's especially a gospel lesson there. Because in some ways what we have there is a picture of how Christ has taken the blow for us. Uh, To say it this way, God's wrath was hurling towards us rightfully because of our sins and we were helpless to do anything about it. In fact, we were caught up in the stuff of this world, not even paying attention to the fact that God's wrath was coming towards us. And then our Savior put Himself in the way of God's righteous anger and He bore the blow in our place on the cross. What would have meant eternal death for us He was able to bear, and in three days, he rose again. And I simply begin this morning by asking, dear Christians, aren't you grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ and that he has taken the blow for us? When we think about Christ dying for our sins, we sometimes only think about one half of the atonement um, because it really isn't enough. To just have our sins forgiven. What does God require of you and me for us to be able to go to heaven? Well, we've seen it over and over. The requirement to go to heaven is righteousness. The requirement to go to heaven isn't just that you're free of wrongdoing, you also must be full of right doing. You see? It's not just that you don't sin. You also must have positive righteousness. You you must be full of good works, good deeds, having done the will of God perfectly in order to be righteous, in order to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, as Jesus said it. So think of it as a number line, okay? So this is for the math nerds in the room. 
Okay, here's the number line. I am zero. Okay, that way is positive. That way is negative. We'll say it goes from negative 10 to positive 10. Okay, the perfect righteousness that God requires is over here. The perfect 10. We don't even start out at zero because we start out in Adam's sin. And then we add to his sin with our own sin. And so here we are way over here. And we got to get way over there. The forgiveness of our sins, the taking away of our negative, brings us to here. We've still got to figure out, how do I get there? How do I become positively righteousness righteous how do i get to positive 10 and the answer of course is that when jesus died on the cross he wasn't just covering our sins with his blood he was also completing a lifetime of perfect obedience to his father and jesus lifetime of perfect obedience his his right doing is accounted to us when we believe So when you believe on Jesus, you don't just come back to zero. When you believe on Jesus, he covers your sins and brings you to zero. And then he gives you, he counts to you his righteousness so that in the eyes of God, God sees you here. God sees you as perfect. God sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Well, Friends, for the last several weeks, as we've been working our way verse by verse through these passages... Paul has been teaching us about two ways to try and get to that 10. There is the way of works, and there is the way of faith in Jesus Christ. And it would be a tragedy if there has been someone in this room hearing these messages week after week, and you're still walking the way of works, and you're still refusing the way of faith in Jesus. And I'm just asking, is is that anybody in this room Heaven and hell hang in the balance. Your eternal destiny is at stake in this question. Are you still trying to merit God's favor by being a halfway decent person in the world's eyes? Or have you been willing to cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ? Have you been willing to take Him as your righteousness before God? Jesus is your only hope of heaven there are two roads that lie before you the way of works and the way of faith and all i'm asking is this which one are you walking which road are you going down because there's only one that's going to get you to heaven this morning paul has even more to teach us about this incredibly important subject let's pick up in verse 5 it's romans 10 verse 5 and we're going to go through verse 9 remember this is the word of God that does not return void. Let's hear it together. Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, 
in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, notice what Paul is contrasting in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. In verse 5, he speaks of the righteousness that is based on the law. In verse 6, he speaks of the righteousness that is based on faith. Okay? So the end game is the same. Righteousness. What must we have to get to heaven? Righteousness. The question is, how do you get there? There is the way of works of the law. There is the way of faith in Jesus. And the first thing Paul wants to say here is something about the way of works. Okay? He has something to say about this righteousness based on works of the law. And what he does is he quotes Moses. And he quotes from Leviticus 18.5. And he says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Shall live by them. Meaning, if you go the way of the law instead of the way of the faith, All of your eggs are in the basket of the law. It's you have to fulfill the law perfectly. The message of the law, when you treat it as a way of works, is do this and live. Do and live. Follow the law perfectly and live. Keep every commandment without fail and live. Paul quotes this same verse in Galatians 3. Many believe Galatians was written at the same time as Romans. Um, Galatians 3, here's how Paul says it there. He says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, here's our verse that he quotes again, The one who does them shall live by them. And so the message is clear. If if you go the way of works, if you try and follow God's commands and merit your own salvation, you're going to be under a curse. Because if you go the way of the law, you have to keep the whole law. You can't be pretty good. right? Remember those Cracker Barrel games with the pegs and you try and get pretty good? Do I have any idea what I'm talking about? Okay. You, you, You can't be pretty good, okay? you got to be perfect if you go the way of the law. James says it this way in James 2. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The whole law, the, the law totem, the God who has given the law, has been transgressed against. So you see, the law was given to Israel to point them to faith in the coming Messiah. And when you choose to use the law unlawfully, when you choose to use the law as as it was never meant to be used, as a way of meriting your salvation through works, you get clobbered by it. The law becomes a hammer and it destroys you. 
Because all you have to do is break one little command and you are guilty of it all before Almighty God. Now having made that point, Paul wants us to marvel at how different the way of faith is. The way of works, hard. Very, very difficult. Indeed, impossible for fallen people like us. The way of faith. See how easy God has made it. Uh, Verses 6 through 8 are glorious, but because of the way they're written, they can be confusing. Because Paul quotes, and then he explains. He quotes, and then he explains. He quotes, and then he explains. And so if, you, if your brain isn't turned on, you miss it. So make sure your brain is turned on this morning. And let's look at verses 6 through 8, and let's see the glory of what Paul was doing here. Let's read the verses again. So start in verse 6, read verses 6 through 8. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. So what Paul is doing in these verses is calling our attention back to a crucial passage in the Old Testament. He's calling us back to Deuteronomy 30. In fact, do me a favor, just turn there. I just want you to see it. Turn to Deuteronomy 30. And I want you to picture this, okay? The the people of Israel are on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And that day they were camping in the plains of Moab. Um, In our day, it's the nation of Jordan. And right after this, Moses is going to go up Mount Pisgah, okay? And he's going to see the promised land that he's been leading God's people to for 40 years. Moses himself, he's not going to be allowed to cross the Jordan and go into it. But he at least gets to see it. He's going to die there on Mount Pisgah. Nobody knows where where his grave is, but he's buried there on Mount Pisgah. Joshua will lead the people across the Jordan into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 30, Moses is basically giving final words, in a real sense, dying words, to the people of Israel. Uh, Just after the verses that Paul refers to in our passage, look beginning in verse 11 of Deuteronomy 30. See if you don't remember this. This was a huge chapter for Old Testament Israel. Beginning in verse 11, Moses says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but you are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, 
obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So the point is this, in Romans 10, when Paul starts quoting Deuteronomy 30 to make a point about the way of faith in verses 6, 7, and 8, He's not quoting some obscure Old Testament passage. This was the kind of passage that many devout Jews could quote from memory. You know how we Christians choose certain passages to put on our walls, right? To sew into our quilts? This was the kind of chapter that Old Testament Israel would have done that with. Old Testament Jews knew and they loved and they took to heart Deuteronomy 30. Very familiar to them. So what does Paul do with this familiar passage. Well, put simply, Paul is showing in Romans 10 how the way of faith, the way of salvation by faith in Jesus, the way of being made righteous before God by faith in Jesus Christ, he's showing how this is grace, how it's a gift of grace, how God has made it so easy. And his point is this, Just as the law came to Israel as a gracious gift from God, so now the even greater gift of Christ to whom the law pointed has come to us as a gracious gift from God. So let me show you how it works. You may want to go back to Romans 10. Let me show you how it works. So in Deuteronomy 30, Moses is speaking about the law, okay? And remember what a gift the law was for Israel. Rightly used, the law would bring them to salvation. The law taught the gospel. The law through its priesthood. The law through its sacrifices. The law led people to faith in the coming Messiah. Um, In a world of paganism, where most people in the ancient world didn't seem to know their left hand from their right hand, God gave to Israel His truth, His law. And he gave it to them as a precious gift of his grace. So listen to how Moses speaks the words that Paul quotes in Romans 10. Moses says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Listen to this. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? In other words, dear Israel, You don't have to find your way up to heaven in order to get the law of God and then bring it down to earth so that you can hear it and do it. You don't have to find a ladder to climb into the very presence of God and say, God, tell us your law. And then hear his law and then come back down from heaven and teach it to Israel so that you can know it and do it. He says, no, God's law has been given to you. It's been given. He, God brought it to you on Mount Sinai. It came to you in black and white. It came to you engraved in stone. Moses says, neither is it beyond the sea. That you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. In their day, going, the depths, going beyond the sea was like going up to heaven. Right, the, the idea of someone sailing to the end of the sea sound crazy. And Moses is saying, you don't have to get on a ship and see how far you can go in the sea and reach the end of the sea to grab the law 
and bring it back so that you can have it. No. God has brought the law to you. You don't have to go do it. He has brought the law to you. Moses says the word is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you can do it. Moses is saying to Israel after 40 years, see how good God has been to you. He's given you the law and He's called you to talk about it with your family. He's called you to talk about it when you get up in the morning, to talk about it when you sit down for dinner, to talk about it when you walk along the way, to be delighting in it, meditating on it when you go to sleep at night. Israel, you're to have the law as frontlets between your eyes. You're to have the law in the doorpost of your houses. Look what God has done for you. He's brought it to you. The rest of the world doesn't have it. And God has brought it to you. Now, in Romans 10, Paul is making the connection between God's gift of the law in the Old Testament and God's gift of Christ to whom the law always pointed in the New Testament. The law is the lesser thing. The Mosaic law, as wonderful as it was, was always the shadow pointing to the real thing, to Christ. And Paul's point here is that just as the law was given graciously, so now Christ has been given to us graciously. This amazing way of salvation, free to any who would have it, has come to us as a gift of grace. So look at what Paul does. Look at how he restates what Moses said in light of Christ. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, he quotes Moses, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. So Moses said in Deuteronomy, you don't have to go to heaven to get God's law and bring it down so we can have it. And Paul says in Romans, you don't have to go to heaven to get Christ and to bring him down so we can have him. Why? Because just as God brought the law to Israel at Mount Sinai, so God brought Christ to us at Bethlehem. Christ came to us so that we don't have to find our way to him. Or verse 7. Look at verse 7. Who will descend into the abyss? That's quoting Moses. Paul explains that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So when Moses said it, he was saying to Israel, you don't have to go beyond the sea to get to the law. God has given the law to you. And perhaps he meant beyond the sea downward, as in depths, as in you don't have to scuba dive to the very bottom of the sea and beyond to get to the law. That seems to be how Paul took it. And Paul says in Romans, you don't have to go down into the depths to get Christ because Christ went to the grave and he came back to us. He arose, the righteous one, the victorious one. In other words, rather than us having to do the impossible thing to have salvation, God has brought salvation through Christ to us. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. But what does it, that is the righteousness based on faith, the way of faith, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And then Paul explains, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. So Moses in Deuteronomy was saying, God has given you the law, and now the law is to be in your mouth and is to be in your heart as you walk through it and you talk about it and you meditate on it. Paul says there's something deeper here 
something that the law was a shadow of. He said, it's the word of the gospel. It's the word of faith in Jesus Christ. And when people are truly changed by the Spirit of God and the gospel takes root in their hearts, they begin to, to confess Christ with their mouths. He becomes their righteousness. He, he is their salvation. He is their fulfillment of the law before God. And just as God brought the law to ancient Israel as a gift of grace, so God has brought salvation to Jesus Christ to us as a gift of grace. I love this. I know it's complicated to get there. That was complicated, wasn't it? Are you still with me? I know it was complicated. Are you still with me? I, I can't tell. Nobody's nodding. Are you still with me? Okay, good. So, I mean, I guess you could do this, and we start all over again, but you probably want to do this. Um, <coughs> so, Justin, how, how can I be saved? One of the answers that this passage gives is the way of salvation is near you. It's right here. You don't have to leave this place like many Eastern religions and go on a journey to find your salvation. You, You don't have to accomplish some impossible task. Because of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the way of salvation is open to you right here, right now, in this very room, in this moment. The way of the law says do this and live. And that will never work for you. But the way of the gospel says, believe on Christ and live. And that can happen right now because of what Christ has done. Paul drives it home in verse 9. Everybody see verse 9? Hopefully you know verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we all know that verse, right? Do you see how it connects to verse 8? Moses said that for God's people, the word is in their mouths. He said the word is in their hearts. And Paul says that's exactly how it is with Christians. We confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. And that confession is rooted in a faith in our hearts, believing that God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him authority over all things in this world. We believe on Christ and we are saved. So let me ask you this question. If it were the only way, if it were the only way for you to be with God and to go to heaven, what would you be willing to do? Uh, People today sing songs about what they would be willing to do for love, right? I noticed as I was coming up with some that apparently I still live in the 90s. Um, Meatloaf saying, I will do anything for love. Anything. Uh, Go right into hell and back, he said. The proclaimers saying, I would walk 500 miles. I would walk 500 more just to be the man who walked 1,000 miles to show up at your door. And if you remember Robin Hood, Brian Adams, I would fight for you. I'd lie for you. I'd walk the wire for you. I'd die for you. And this is the language our world uses when it sings about what people would be willing to do for earthly love. And I'm asking you about knowing God. I'm talking about having God as your God. I'm talking about going to heaven and not hell. What would you be willing to do if this was the requirement for eternal life? Blank. 
what would you be willing to do? I think of Reepicheep the mouse in the Chronicles of Narnia and his longing even for just a peak, just a peak of Aslan's country. And the ship kept sailing, and at some point there was the possibility that the ship would sail right off the edge of the world and plummet to disaster. And Reepicheep said that if in that moment when the ship began to plummet, he said if for one moment we catch a glimpse of Aslan's country, it will all be worth it. I ask you again, what would you be willing to do to have eternal life? Would you be willing to climb the highest mountain? If the door to heaven was atop Mount Everest, would you attempt the climb? Would you be willing to dive into the deepest part of the sea if you knew at the bottom of the ocean there was a door that would lead you into the presence of God? Even if it's the Marietta Trench, would you be willing to risk it in order to have heaven and not hell? Friends, the message of the gospel and the message of this passage is that however much you may love Jesus, Jesus loves you more. And he has done the hard thing in bringing salvation to you. He came from heaven to earth, giving up the glories of heaven. The infinite became finite. The all-knowing God became a brand new baby boy who had to learn everything. The all-powerful God became utterly dependent on teenage parents. Jesus endured sickness. He endured sorrow. He endured hunger. He endured weariness. Jesus went through a temptation from Satan more powerful and more agonizing than anything you or I have ever experienced. Jesus was scorned. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was lied about and betrayed by close friends. Skin was ripped from his back. Thorns were pressed into his brow. Nails, excuse me, nails stuck into his wrist. Following the, the custom of Roman crucifixion, probably his two feet were put one on top of the other, and a large stake was put through the, through the ankles. More than that, Jesus climbed the highest mountain of suffering bearing the very wrath of God, an expression of hell itself for sinners. It began in the Garden of Gethsemane when it came upon him there as an internal, soul-crushing agony that was so tormenting that he sweat drops like blood. In his humanity, he cried out to his Father that if there was any way, any way at all, to let that cup of suffering pass from him, but even in the midst of the greatest suffering we can imagine, as Jesus was doing something greater than us overcoming Mount Everest or diving into the Marietta Trench, as Jesus was doing something unbelievably hard, bearing the wrath of God for sinners, nevertheless, because of his love for his Father and his love for all who would ever believe on him, he said, not as I will, but as you will. And on the cross, Jesus drank fully the cup of the wrath of God for his people. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? 3 p.m., the time when the shofar sounded from the temple. 3 p.m., when Passover lambs were slain. 3 p.m., Jesus says it is finished. 
and he commits his spirit to his father and he died. And then three days later, from the depths, he arose. You think climbing Mount Everest is hard. You think diving down into the Marietta Trench is hard. Jesus rose from the dead. The, the cold, motionless body in the tomb suddenly warmed. The color returned. The heart, which had just been sitting there, not beating for three days, suddenly started beating again. The brain, which had ceased all activity, was suddenly buzzing again. The, the human soul of Christ united with the human body of Christ. And in that moment, death was conquered forever. And his body was now glorified, perfected, incapable of dying again. And this was all done by the Lord Jesus Christ for this reason, to bring salvation to you so that you don't have to do the impossible thing. He did it for you so that right here, right now, what's required of you? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the glory Paul wants you to see in Romans 10, 6, 7, and 8. The door to heaven is not atop a mountain. It's not at the bottom of the trench. It's right here, right now. That if you would turn from living your life your own way, and you would trust Christ. You would entrust yourself to him. He will bring you safely to heaven. He won't make all your troubles go away. He'll be with you through your troubles. And he will bring you to the place where troubles are no more. What must we do to be saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved and that's what we're going to unpack that verse next week for easter sunday let's pray